Hello, and welcome to the R Foundation's podcast. My name is Joshua. Today's episode will be wrapping up this season, really. It'll be wrapping up a series we've been doing on technocracy, but more than that, wrapping up season three, which has been focused on using the early church as a parallel to modern alternative movements. So the deal is that the early church was not a big fan of the state of Rome, of the Roman Empire. They also had plenty of conflict with the culture of Rome and the culture that they were around and within. Then they also had a lot of issue with the institutional religion that was dominant, that was very related to them. Most of the original church were Jews. Most of the disciples were Jews. And so uh, this was kind of a big deal because Judaism ended up being a, uh, a big conflict between the original church and the people that began to first believe in Christ. And so you had this group of people that came together as a community built around a specific belief system that at its core was, well, it at least had some central tenets of values and morality and ethics that are related to free will and voluntary interaction and things of this nature that have a lot of parallels to modern alternative movements. And so that's the deal. This early group of people, the original church just after the time of Christ, they started off very small, built around an ideology had a lot of differences of opinions. They were not big fans of the state or the culture or the religion of their day, any of these things. They wanted to do something different. They had different beliefs. And with this, they chose not to start a revolt or a rebellion or force people and fight for their cause or anything of this nature. Instead, they chose a voluntary method of serving others. And that was based on the teachings of Yeshua, as well as the rest of the scriptures. And so they were able to do this through this strategy and become the foundation for all of Western society as it exists today. And that's a pretty big deal. Basically, Christianity took over the world. And with that, I will give the caveat that what Christianity became, what the church became at many periods in time and in history, it was often very different than this original church, which is why I go back to the original church, because that was when things were at this pure stage. Pretty much all things, all movements start off very pure, and then they grow, they gain traction, they typically then start to lose some of their impact, they start to lose some of their purity, they become corrupted, and in the end end up typically serving the interests of the opposite of what they started off trying to do. And that is true of just about every movement in history for societies and mankind. So with this, we go back to this early church, we see what they were doing, we see that it's very similar to modern times. Now, what are these modern alternative movements I'm talking about? It's mostly agorism and similar models. So you could get into something like voluntarism or libertarianism, uh, some avenues of anarchism, 
lots of different aspects like this, you might be able to find some correlation with things like uh, constitutionalism and some of those movements, although uh, in my opinion at their core, they are direct contradictions. So uh, this would be movements that are not statist. So you've got the state, and you have people that believe in the state. These would be the statists. Then you have people that do not believe in the state, and those would not be statists. And so it is these non-statists that are starting to uh, form a movement. This is starting to become more popular, have more influence. People are trying to become less and less reliant on the state, People are seeing more and more that the state does not have their best interests at heart. And although they would have always agreed that, well, most politicians are corrupt and the state is inefficient and ineffective and all this stuff, they still would have said, well, it's the best we got or we need it or it keeps us safe or whatever the case may be. People are finally starting to see that these things aren't necessarily true, and that the answer may not lie within the state, but rather within the individuals forming community. So this then brings us to the bulk of today's episode and getting into this idea of looking at the original church as an example that we might be able to pull a lot from or directly follow. Ideally, directly follow, in my opinion, but if not, then at least mimic a lot of their strategies and some of their beliefs and ideologies. Now, I will mostly just be reading things that come from that time period or shortly after, and that is the bulk of what I want to do, to be able to state these things in their own terms. That's my goal here. But overall, I can start off by saying that looking into the beliefs of the first Christians would be beneficial to legitimize and to clarify a lot of the points I have made throughout this season, season three of this podcast. These believers lived and worshiped in the time of the apostles or just after, and many were direct disciples of the apostles. Some were around for Yeshua's teachings, but almost all of them were only one generation removed from Yeshua's ministry. So learning what they believed, how they acted, and their interpretation of the Bible and Yeshua's teachings, it is very helpful in further clarifying the points that I have been making, and basically the bulk of season three. So since many of my assertions run contrary to common modern doctrine, it seems that I may need to seek backup from a more authoritative source than just my own opinions and conclusions. And although I have done that to some degree, and I have read a lot of quotes, those have mostly been on the secular side, and I haven't really gotten back into the historical realm. And that's what I'm trying to do here is go back to the original church and give it to you in their own words. Now, admittedly, these topics were not universally agreed upon. Even then, the church was very decentralized, and many segments and members had varying beliefs and levels of application of these types of things. So just because one Christian that was a very early church father says one thing, that doesn't mean that the entire original church believed that one thing. 
but this should give you an idea of the types of things that they believed, the impact that they were having, and this type of thing. So I'm not only going to read from Christians of the day and some of these early church fathers, but also a lot from historians of the day and looking back at that day, and so giving a a more, I guess, objective view on what these early Christians were doing and the impact they had on the world around them. So where I will start off will be one of my favorite theologians and writers, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this would come from The Cost of Discipleship, a book that I would highly, highly recommend. It, like most of them that I have recommended, turns out to not be all that long, but it is very packed full of some great information and highly recommended people. But when he is talking about the original Christians, this is something that he said that stood out to me. Quote, It is not always the world which ejects the Christian from his secular calling. Even in the first century, we find that certain professions were regarded as incompatible with membership of the Christian church. The actor who had to play the part of pagan gods and heroes, the teacher who was forced to teach pagan mythologies in pagan schools, the gladiator who had to take human life for sport, the soldier who wielded the sword, the policeman and the judge all had to renounce their heathen professions if they wanted to be baptized. Later, the church, or was it perhaps the world, found it possible to lift the ban on these professions. So there, Bonhoeffer gives us a good idea on some of the thoughts that these original Christians had, that first century church. And I would venture to say that a lot of these opinions run contrary to most people in the modern church. And guess what? You're going to see a lot of parallels between today's institutionalized church and institutionalized religion and the institutionalized religion of the days of the early church. Uh, Imagine that. There are parallels, and they all seem to line up. Very interesting. So, the next one, well, I guess I, I could make a few comments here. It does talk about how uh, Christians were not, in general, viewed as being able to be actors pretending to be pagan gods and heroes or teachers teaching pagan belief systems in the schools. This is something that a lot of people might have some conflicts with today. You have people in professions that do things that bolster some secular ideologies and secular belief systems. Look back to the idea of secular religion from earlier in this season, and you could look at something like statism or scientism or the Church of Woke. There are people who have to spit out that doctrine as part of their job and they call themselves Christians at the same time. So there, I would think, would necessarily be at least some conflict there, some internal conflict, or there should be, that should at least be something that people would think about. Now, I am not saying that you're not a Christian if you are in one of these professions, but what I am saying is that it would be very wise to assess this very carefully, especially given that the original church viewed these things as not being compatible with Christianity, and the original church should have 
a lot of authority on this matter, as they did learn directly from Yeshua and his disciples. So, the next professions that were listed were the gladiator and the soldier, the policeman, and the judge. And he doesn't go into detail on why. He does say that the gladiator had to take human life for sport, and that that was not a good thing. And I would agree that's kind of hard to argue. I doubt, at least, that modern Christians would go for that one. But the soldier who wielded the sword, that is one that definitely has some different opinions. There are pacifists. There are also those who just believe that supporting and being the force of the state would not be compatible with Christianity. I would probably fall into that camp. And you have some that believe that being a soldier and being a patriot is right in line with Christian values and beliefs and Romans 13, which uh, I, I promise you we will get to Romans 13 at some point. That would be very valuable to do. So the next ones are the policeman and the judge, which is interesting because especially the judge, the judge doesn't directly use any physical force against any other person, whereas the the soldier definitely does. The gladiator definitely does. The policeman at times will. The judge does not at all. All the judge is doing is giving out the will of the state and condemning or not condemning a person in the name of the state. That is what a judge does. And you could try to argue a more universal definition of judge and say that maybe Moses and the elders that he chose to delegate power to were judges. And that is true. You even have the book of judges, which has people that kind of play that role as well. But this is not what Bonhoeffer is talking about. This is in the context of the state that should be pretty clear, especially when he combines policeman and judge. This is not in a world of anarchy. This is not in a world of mosaic law where there is no centralized government. That is not the world that they live in. This is Rome. A policeman and a judge were serving the Roman Empire. That's what they were doing, and it was believed by many in the church that this was wrong. And so you can look at the argument that many people give today, a very legitimate argument, that there is good that can be done by using some of these professions and positions, such as politicians, such as judges and policemen and soldiers, that you can protect people, you can do good, you can spread the message of Christ, you can spread the principles that are in the Bible. And while that is true, I would say be very, very careful because it directly contradicts what the original church believed. So they probably also had some very good reasons for that. And if that is something that you fall back on, Christ and his teaching and his disciples, then this would be something that definitely deserves your attention and scrutiny. So I will go ahead and go to the next. It's a short one. This is from the Anti-Nicene Fathers, Volume 3, page 73. And uh, this quote, I don't have a specific person from it, but uh, again, that source should lead you right to it if you need to look it up. The quote is, shall we carry a flag? It is a rival to Christ. 
And that was a general opinion that the flag was a symbol of the state and of an earthly king, a human king, a human ruler over other humans, and that that was a contradiction to the very message of Christ. It is a rival to Christ because Christ came to bring the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not of this world, according to Christ. And he said, if it was of this world, then he would have soldiers fighting on his behalf. But it is not. He is a king, but of a different kingdom. So if you have a king of another kingdom, then necessarily that would be a rival to a king that is saying he is king over the entire world and all of humanity. So, should you carry a representation or believe in a representation of that human king who's a rival to the king of the kingdom of God? This is what they're pointing out here. Now, the next one will come from Tertullian, and this is from AD 197 to 212. And it's somewhere in that range when this quote comes from. He was one of the early church fathers and a lot of worthwhile things to read from him. The quote goes like this, quote, But now inquiry is made about this point, whether a believer may turn himself unto military service, and whether the military may be admitted unto the faith, even the rank and file, or each inferior grade to whom there is no necessity for taking part in sacrifices or capital punishments. There is no agreement between the divine and the human sacrament, the standard of Christ and the standard of the devil, the camp of light and the camp of darkness. One soul cannot be due to two masters, God and Caesar. And yet, Moses carried a rod, and Aaron wore a buckle, and John is girt with leather, and Joshua, the son of Nun, leads a line of march, and the people warred. If it pleases you to sport with the subject, but how will a Christian man war? Nay, how will he serve even in peace without a sword, which the Lord has taken away? For albeit soldiers had come unto John and had received the formula of their rule, albeit likewise a centurion had believed. Still, the Lord afterward, in disarming Peter, unbelted every soldier. No dress is lawful among us, if assigned to any unlawful action. So there are some very good points that he brings out in that quote. Uh, A lot of this is, you know, specifically looking at this profession of being a soldier. And he brings up these points of, well, what about Joshua leading armies and Moses carrying a rod and all of these different things and the people of Israel warring? Uh, Doesn't that mean that we can do the same thing? Well, no, not according to Tertullian. He does specifically say that there is no agreement between the the divine and the human sacrament. The standard of Christ and the standard of the devil, the camp of light and the camp of darkness— He is very clear that these are two different things, and they do not go together. I have done other episodes specifically on that subject, so you can go back and reference those if you like. But this is something that he makes very clear. So, even though you did have some examples in Scripture of people warring and there being soldiers who were followers of God, he says that now, in disarming Peter— He has unbelted every soldier. And although this is not exactly the 
route that I would argue personally, it is a good argument nonetheless that Peter had a very good reason of defending Jesus. Jesus was in- innocent and the state was coming to kill him. And so in defense, self-defense, well, Peter was defending someone else who was not going to defend themselves. And so in that realm of, I would say it's the realm of self-defense, Peter pulled out his sword and Christ said, no, this is not the way. And so in doing so, that is a message to all Christians, according to Tertullian. So take that as his quote, not mine, and it doesn't have to be yours, but it is a good point that we do have examples in Scripture where Christ specifically says, and the disciples and their disciples later say very similar things, that violence and force is not the way of the kingdom of God, period. Just like Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would have soldiers fighting. We would use force, but we're not because that's not the way. So the next quote is also also Tertullian. So I'll go ahead and read that. He says, quote, if he, referring to Christ, would not even once exercise the right of dominion over his own for whom he did the most menial services, if he, fully conscious as he was of his regal power, yet shrank from being made a king, he gave a perfect example to all his disciples to avoid all which is high and glorious in earthly rank and power. End quote. So, yes, Christ did have every right to be king. He had many claims to the throne of Israel in a secular sense, whether it be from bloodline or without bloodline. That's the really cool thing of his lineage through Mary and through Joseph. Through Mary, it was a direct bloodline that he was directly linked to the line of kings. But there was a curse that was put on that line at some point in uh, the earlier time that is recorded in Scripture. And so technically, that line no longer had a right to the throne. But there is, if you look at the genealogy, there is another branch that was not directly descendant from that cursed line that did have a legal claim to the throne, and that is how Yeshua does have a legal claim to the throne, and it's on both sides. Now, I I should actually say that I I'm not 100% positive which side, whether whether it was Mary or Joseph, which side had which line. I can't remember for sure. I think I just said Mary was one, but I'm not 100% positive on that. But basically, there were two ways that Jesus is connected to the line of kings, and one is a bloodline, and one is the right that sidestepped the curse that that legal right comes from. So he's got both of them, which is pretty cool. So, But the point is that he did have a right to the throne. He could have called himself the king of Israel and had every right to do so. He had the power to do so. He even had a spiritual right to do so that God had given dominion to him over the whole world. It was his. And so with this, he had every right to exercise some sort of political power, of earthly rank and power. And yet he chose not to. Instead, he said that his kingdom was not of this world. And he, he um, sought a different path. So that is a, an example to us as Christians that we 
should not seek earthly rank and power and rather seek another path. And again, going back to the modern parallels, if you are a libertarian or if you are an anarchist or agorist or voluntarist or whatever, yes, you can seek political office. That is a method that you can choose, and you can do things with that. Do you think Jesus could have done something if he claimed to be king of Israel and defeated the Romans and became a an earthly power? Yes, he could have done a lot of good, but he didn't, and there are many reasons why. And so going back to, let's say, the libertarian can you get some regulations passed or get some regulations uh, written off if you were in a political office? Yes, you can. There is good that you can do there. But should you do that? And for many, many, many reasons, I would say, no, that would not be the way to go. And those reasons are both ideological and practical. And I have also done episodes on that. And you can refer back to those for that opinion as well. Now, going on to the next, this is another one of the early church fathers. This is St. John Chrysostom, and from, this is from A.D. 347 to 407. He said, quote, I am a Christian. He who answers thus has declared everything at once, his country, profession, family. The believer belongs to no city on earth, but to the heavenly Jerusalem. So again, he's talking about this other kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. So if you say you're a Christian, then you have automatically declared your country, your profession, your family. You have automatically declared that you are not a Roman, period. You are not a patriot of whatever nation you live in. That is, in his opinion at least, within the very definition of being a Christian. And so he would argue that that has a lot of weight. And I would not disagree. So the next one comes from Justin the Martyr, and he was around in AD 100 to 165. Quote, God called Abraham and commanded him to go out from the country where he was living. With this call, God has roused us all, and now we have left the state. We have renounced all the things the world offers. The gods of the nations are demons. And so he is saying that, well, he's using this parallel of Abraham to say that we are to come out of the state, out of statism, and instead enter something else, come somewhere else, come to the promised land, so to say, if you're looking at this allegorically, that is what he is trying to say. So do not go to Rome, go to the church. These are two different things, and you leave one to be a part of the other. And again, this applies in the modern secular realm as well. The next one is Marcellus of Tangier, spoken as he left the army of Emperor Diocletian in AD 298. Quote, I threw down my arms, for it was not seemly that a Christian man who renders military service to the Lord Christ should render it by earthly injuries. It is not lawful for a Christian to bear arms for any earthly consideration. And so he believed that very strongly, that not even lawful for a Christian to bear arms for any earthly consideration. And earthly considerations would be save your own life. So he was pretty extreme in that. 
And uh, he, if I remember right, don't quote me on this, but he might have been the one who's him or another one um, that, well, there were many at the time, but out of quotes that I did read and people I directly read about uh, that left military service and was executed for it. So that's a pretty strong belief, knowingly going to your death because you believe that this is wrong. Now, the next one comes from a book with an anonymous author from the 4th or 5th century called The Testament of Our Lord. Quote, If anyone be a soldier or in authority, let him be taught not to oppress or to kill or to rob or to be angry or to rage and, and afflict anyone. But let those rations suffice him which are given to him. But if they wish to be baptized in the Lord, let them cease from military service or from authority. And if not, let them be not received. Let a catechumen or a believer of the people, if he desire to be a soldier, either cease from his intention, or if not, let him be rejected. For he hath despised God by his thought, and leaving the things of the Spirit, he hath perfected himself in the flesh, and hath treated the faith with contempt. So this is talking about how do you deal with somebody who wants to be a believer, wants to join the church, but they are in military service, or they are um, with the authority, is the way he says it, but basically politician, uh, involved with the state. How do you handle someone like that who is looking to join the church? And he basically says they have to choose. It's one or the other. It is not both. And this is a common theme here. And again, I am not saying, I am not saying that me personally, that... I am telling you that if you are involved with the state, you are therefore not a Christian. That is not what I am saying. And I will say that these quotes that I'm reading are not definite biblical doctrine. This is not coming down with the force of God's word. But this does have merit. This does have value. This does have authority. This does have weight. This is coming from people who, again, learned from Yeshua and his disciples and their disciples. This is coming from the very early church learning directly from the source. And if they believed something, especially this strongly, there's probably something to that. So while I'm not saying that this is irrefutable and this is straight from God, I am saying that this is very directly connected and does need to be seriously considered. And I guess kind of more importantly for the context of what I am doing in the season, it is very clear that there are very direct parallels to these more modern alternative movements that we really need to pay attention to. If you believe that the state is immoral, if you believe that they are ineffective and inefficient, if you believe that they are doing harm to society through their corruption and their actions— well, you, I would think, would want to do something about that. Hopefully. Hopefully you're not just going to say, oh, they're horrible. They're doing these horrible things. And uh, I'm going to live my life over here. Well, hopefully you would uh, be spurred to do something. And that something I would encourage you is not to fight, not to uh, get out there and protest in the streets, not to start a rebellion, not to do any of this stuff. This is not the way. And that's what I'm trying to show here through this example of the early church, that the way is to choose a different path, choose a different kingdom. The way is to build something better and live according to this pure ethic and morality and ideology. 
Now, the next one is a quote from Hippolytus. The Apostolic Traditions is the book that this comes from. And he says, quote, A military man and authority must not execute men. If he is ordered, he must not carry it out. Nor must he take military oath. If he refuses, he shall be rejected. If someone is a military governor or the ruler of a city who wears the purple, he shall cease or he shall be rejected. The catechumen or faithful who wants to become a soldier is to be rejected, for he has despised God. So again, they're taking this pretty seriously, that if you choose to be a soldier, if you choose to be a politician, if you choose that path, if you choose to wear the purple, that's being involved with the state, that's purple is royalty, and this is in a secular sense that he's talking about here. So if you choose that path, then you are automatically choosing a different path than the kingdom of God. Those are two paths that are it's a dichotomy. You can't choose both. They are different. You choose one or you choose the other. Now, another interesting thing that I guess I didn't mention, earlier on, there was a quote that I read that said something about carrying out capital punishment. Many Christians today believe that capital punishment is something given down by God that should be enacted by the secular state. And I would just point out that, again, in the original church, there were plenty that said that that is definitely not the case, that a Christian should not carry out capital punishment on behalf of the state. And that was pretty clear. So uh, you should see that there are many contradictions with the modern institutional church. And yes, there were many contradictions between what this church was saying, the original church, and the institutional church of their day, let's say Judaism. And remember, Yeshua was the Messiah of the Jews. Uh, There was Judaism that pointed to someone coming that was a part of God, and that someone did come. So it's, in a sense, a continuation of Judaism, not just this whole new random thing that came up out of nowhere. This is directly from Judaism. So if there was some sort of revival in today's modern world, it would come from the modern Christian church. It would not be some new thing that came out of nowhere, but it would be something very different than the modern Christian church it would be something new. And you can take that wherever you want. Think about it on your own. But there are also prominent historians of the early church who shed light on similar aspects of the beliefs of the church. And so I'll read some of those now. This first one comes from Neander. He said, quote, It was far from their imaginations to conceive it possible that Christianity should appropriate itself to the relations and offices of the state. The Christians stood aloof from the state as a priestly and spiritual race, and Christianity seemed able to influence civil life only in that manner, which, it must be confessed, is the purest by practically endeavoring to instill more and more of the holy feeling into the citizens of the state. So he's talking about how, yes, they didn't use the state, don't really need to explain a lot of that. But in addition to that, that this is the purest way to go about it, and it does have an effect on the citizenry, even if you are influencing them strictly in civil life through this uh, aspect of spirituality and religion, that that does have a big impact. The next mini quotes come from Edward Gibbon, and uh, I will admit that 
Some people believe that Edward Gibbon did not tell an exactly accurate view of all aspect of his histories, but... I will also say that these quotes in particular seem to come from areas that there's not a lot of debate about. So that's where I'm drawing from. The first is, quote, and he's talking about the Christians here, quote, their simplicity was offended by the use of oaths, by the pomp of magistry, by the active contention of public life, nor could their humane ignorance be convinced that it was lawful on any occasion to shed the blood of our fellow creatures, either by the sword of justice or by that of war, even though their criminal attempts should threaten the peace and safety of the community. So he's saying that this is not necessarily a good thing, that this is threatening the peace and safety of the community, like most statists would say today. But even so, what they believed was that they should not use force and violence against other people, whether it's through justice or whether it's through war. And yes, that does have a lot of differences with most in the modern church today. The next bit, quote, The Christians felt and confessed that such institutions, human governments, might be necessary for the present system of the world, and they submitted to the authority of their pagan governors. This indolent or even criminal disregard of the public welfare exposed them to the contempt and reproach of the pagans, who very frequently asked what must be the fate of the empire attacked on all sides by barbarians if all mankind should adopt the pusillanimous statements of the new sect. So he does make it clear that the Christians did not fight against the state, but rather they submitted to the state, which should make a lot of sense because that's what Romans 13 says, and that's what Yeshua did tell them to do, to submit. But at the same time, they were viewed, even though they submitted, as indolent or even criminal in, in their disregard of the public welfare because they did not view the state from a statist perspective. And so the, the people of Rome often felt like the Christians were the ones that were going to bring down the empire because there were these barbarians on all sides and they were causing all this disruption on the inside and they're not even taking up arms and warfare and that this was going to be the end of the empire because of the Christians. And I would say that this is a very good starting point for understanding Romans 13, to submit, but not to support and not to be a part of. That is key. And I would also agree with modern alternative movements that there are times when, personally, my opinion is that you should submit, even though the law is immoral, even though they have no right to do something according to natural law or sometimes even their own law, but still, the, the method that I personally vouch for is not resistance, but submission. And even though you submit, that doesn't mean that you support. That doesn't mean that you're saying it's okay or that it's right. That just means you're choosing a different path of resistance. You're choosing a different path of strategy for how to pursue actual liberty and morality. And that path is different than rebellion. So the next one, also Edward Gibbon still, and uh, this was roughly from the time period, by the way, of AD 284 to AD 300. The next one is, quote, 
But while they inculcated the maxims of passive obedience, they refused to take any active part in the civil administration or military defense of the empire. So again, just to make it very clear from a an historian's perspective that they refused to take any active part in civil administration or military defense. So they did not fight for the state. They did not have a profession within the state, at least an administrative profession. And so that is pretty clear there. I don't really need to explain that. The next one, quote, a sentence of death was executed on Maximilianus, an African youth, who was produced by his father as a sufficient and legal recruit, but who obstinately persisted in declaring that his conscience would not permit him to embrace the profession of a soldier. On the day of a public festival, Marcellus, a centurion, threw away his belt, his arms, and the insignia of his office, and exclaimed with a loud voice that he would obey none but Jesus Christ, the eternal king, that he renounced forever the use of carnal weapons and the service of an idolatrous master. He was condemned and beheaded for his desertion. And I believe that might have been the example I was thinking of when I mentioned one earlier from an earlier quote, and it might have been Marcellus as well. It might be that exact example, because that does sound familiar, but recounted by two different people. And then the one before it was Maximilianus, the African youth, both of them who chose and specifically said, and this is a historian that is accounting this, that they could not take up arms, period, because they were Christian. And that was a direct that was a direct contradiction. They just couldn't do it. So I've got two more from Edward Given Gibbon, and the first is quote The humble Christians were sent into this world as sheep among wolves. And since they were not permitted to use force even in defense of their own religion, they should be still more criminal if they were tempted to shed the blood of their fellow men in disputing the vain privileges or sordid possessions of this transitory life. So, yes, if you can't even pick up the sword in the name of your own religion and def- to defend yourself, then how in the world could you pick up the sword against someone else for the sake of the state? And that's kind of the point he's making here, and that's a good question. Yeah. Although, again, there are many disagreements in today's world. There were not so many disagreements on this matter in that time. So he actually specifically says that these Christians were sheep among wolves, that you know this is not a good position for them to be in, and most people viewed it this way. They looked down on the Christians for these things because... Uh, like today, most people were statist, and most people viewed force as the method for achieving goals, and Christians did not. The next one, quote, The Christians, after the conversion of Constantine, still resorted to the tribunals of their church to decide their claims and pecuniary disputes. So he's pointing out that the Christians, definitely before then, and even after Constantine, that was a good while later. In my book, that is after you already had plenty of corruptions involved in, uh, I would say, theology as well as the structure of the church. But even then, they were not using the secular court system. They didn't believe in it. They had their own. They handled their own disputes. They decided their own claims within their own community. They had a parallel society, and they lived it out. Uh, That is something that 
does not really exist today that I know of. Now, you've got the Amish, you've got the Mennonites, you've got the Anabaptists, those types of folks. But in the anything that's not quite that extreme, I do not know of this existing. Now, often elders will hear a dispute if asked, but there is no court for people to go to. And so far as I know, it is pretty rare that Christians having a dispute choose to go to the church rather than to go to the secular court. Whereas at this time, even when Constantine converted to Christianity, at least according to them, and it was a Christian empire, the people still would not use the state. The state was still viewed as off limits from that perspective. So I wonder how they viewed Constantine from this perspective as well, being a magistrate and all. So going on to the next one. These next two come from Johann Lorenz Moshim, and the book is Institutes of Ecclesiastical History, Ancient and Modern, Volume 3. First one's from page 200. The second one is from page 213, in case you care. The first one, quote, Prior to the age of Luther, there lay concealed in almost every country of Europe, but especially in Bohemia, Moravia, Switzerland, and Germany, very many persons in whose minds was deeply rooted that principle which the Waldenses, the Wycliffs, and the Hussites maintained, some more covertly, others more openly, namely that the kingdom set upon earth or the visible church is an assembly of holy persons and ought therefore to be entirely free, not only from ungodly persons and sinner, but from all institutions of human device against sin. What is an institution of human device against doing wrong? That is the state. And many prior to the age of Luther... So this is just pointing out that this isn't just a post-Reformation deal, that there were still many before Luther who had these beliefs very strong. I've talked about the Hussites uh, before today. I don't know if I've mentioned the rest of them, but there were many groups prior to Luther who did have these views. And I would argue Luther was not even as strict on these views as they were. And so that's just to point out that you go from the original church even post-Constantine and even pre-Reformation, there are many times in history, post-Reformation Anabaptists, many times, and that's even modern times as well. But there is this thread, there is this remnant throughout the Christian church that believes that the state is not the way. They are not statists. And that's just the way it is. And I think that's valuable to point out. This is also true of secular reformers. You look at someone like Gandhi or MLK, people like this who had major movements that had a major impact, but they did not do so through force or rebellion, nor did they do so by joining forces with the state, although any of them could have in some way or another. They chose not to, and that was very impactful. So from the practical perspective, that worked out pretty well. Uh, on most accounts. Although, you know, MLK was assassinated, so you have that as well. But as far as the movement is concerned, it was a successful movement by many standards. And so, let's go ahead and move on to the next one. And these are on doctrines that were common for centuries before Luther. Again, coming from Moshim, Moshiem, M-O-S-H-E-I-M is the guy's last name. So he says, quote, number one, 
they should receive none into their church by the sacrament of baptism unless they are adults and have full use of their reason. They that they should not admit magistrates nor suffer their members to perform the functions of magistracy. Three, that they should deny the justice of repelling force by force or of waging war. Four, that they should have strong aversion to all penalties and punishments, especially capital punishment. Five, it forbids their confirming anything by an oath. So this is a list of things that they believed. And again, this was prior to Luther, but this is, as I'm sure you can tell, a continuation of what was going on from the original church. It's it's these same principles. And so uh, it's interesting that they point out yet again capital punishment, especially in a world where most Christians view that as the legitimate place of the state, as, as well as just the functions of magistrate magistracy. I didn't even know that was a word, and it might not be. I don't know. Um, And they believed that these things were wrong, that people shouldn't repel force by force. They shouldn't wage war. They shouldn't be involved in penalties and punishment, period, especially capital punishment. So capital punishment is a separate deal. He's pointing out specifically, probably because it was a big issue of their day, just like it is of our day, But he starts off, and the overall point is all penalties and punishments. And this is, of course, within the context of the state. And again, that's what a lot of Christians today believe that the state should do, that we should get the state to enforce through penalties and punishments the morality of, let's say, biblical principles and biblical values. And there are many in the original church, as well as this time centuries before Luther is the time frame that is listed here. And there it just goes through. There's a remnant. There's always a string of a remnant. Now, the next one is from Nathaniel Lardner, and this comes from roughly 270 AD. Quote, Paul, bishop of Antioch, was tried by a council of bishops. Among the charges was... Quote, he accepted secular dignities and chose rather to be considered a judge than a bishop. So if you had someone, Paul, Bishop of Antioch, who was tried by a council of bishops, so he was brought to this Christian court to uh, hear a dispute, the charge was he accepted secular dignities and chose to be a judge rather than a bishop. And so the whole point is that basically he got involved with the state in some way and that this was wrong, so wrong that they brought him to court and obviously not the secular court because they didn't believe in that, but the court of the church and he was tried for this. So yes, this was a serious thing. Now, the next one comes from Thomas Armitage from his book, History of the Baptists. And I've got two quotes from him. First one is, quote, We have seen that the party represented chiefly by Hub Meyer believed in government, paid all taxes, and obeyed all ordinances that did not interfere with the free exercise of religion. 
But as a magistrate must bind himself by civil oath and use the sword, they held that a Christian could not be a magistrate because the apostles knew nothing of church taxes imposed by the state, held no office, and took no part in war. They thought civil government was necessary for the wicked, but their foes either could or would not understand them. So he's saying that there are those that paid all their taxes and obeyed all the ordinances and did not interfere with free exercise of religion, all these things. But even them, they did not believe that a Christian could be a magistrate because of the issue of the sword and the oath. And in addition to that, you had this uh, point that he brings up, because the apostles knew nothing of church taxes imposed by the state, held no office, and took no part in war. So yes, he's going back to the original church, to the apostles, saying, you know, they didn't do this. And even if civil government was necessary for the wicked, is what they said, that this was not the realm of the Christian. The next one is also from Thomas, Thomas Armitage, and uh, uh, forgive me if I mispronounce something, but Denk, whom Holler calls the Apollo of the Anabaptists, says, quote, The apostles treat earnestly that Christians must be subject to government, but they do not teach that they may be governors. For Paul says, quote, What have I to do to judge them that are without? End quote. He would then have Christians withdraw from politics and have un unconverted men to wield the sword of the civil and military ruler as a thing entirely separate from the church. End final quote. And so he's going back to Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, to say that you can't bear the sword. You cannot wield the sword of the civil and military ruler, period, because it is a thing entirely separate from the church. So I think this has made the point definitely clear here. I would say that there is no need to comment at any length further upon these statements. They speak for themselves. So, of course, there were early believers that disagreed with these statements, like I said, but the point of me highlighting them is simply to show that they existed within the first Christian communities and aren't new or unorthodox perspectives. Many early church leaders and thinkers believed that the believers should be separate from the state. Many felt that military service was impermissible. Many felt that holding political office was breaking with God's kingdom. Although some felt that these actions warranted excommunication, I am not personally calling for this doctrine or giving any value judgment on any specific statements listed, as I've said before. Some matters are matters of salvation, and some are matters of ideal. To my knowledge, the majority of matters related to the Christian's relation with the state pertain to the latter, the matters of ideal, though God would be the only authoritative judge on the line between the two, not me. We are saved through faith. My view can be related to this fact, that from a Christian perspective, we are saved through faith by grace, not through the law by obedience. Clearly, though, we are still to love and follow God's law and show complete obedience to him, or as close as we are able to get with our imperfect knowledge and understanding and self-control and whatnot. So I personally feel the same way regarding our actions and thoughts related to politics and obedience in the earthly realm. Although it is not a matter of salvation, it is a matter of obedience to God and seeking his ideals and desires for us. Therefore, it is of great importance for the Christian. 
And again, going back to this theme of the parallel to the modern secular in this season of uh, Our Foundations, this podcast, I, I, I've got to bring this out that there are many ways, there are many strategies, there are many methods, and all of them can produce good things for the goal of, let's say, liberty and voluntarism and these types of things. And uh, although most in the secular perspective would not tie these to biblical values, uh, they actually do line up extremely well with biblical values because it's basically the same thing. It's the golden rule. It's free will. It is serving one another, showing love to your fellow human being, all of these things. They are very in line. So what I would say is that even though there are many ways of pursuing liberty and freedom and good things, the path of resistance to the state in the form of direct resistance and force and rebellion and protest and these types of things, that is not really, I just say that's not the way, period. That although it can produce some results, the best results and the results that have been proven throughout history come from building out parallel movements, building out a parallel society, doing something different and better, that that has a bigger impact and in the long run is much, much more successful than revolt and revolution. Even if revolt and revolution have oftentimes historically totally changed things, in the long run, that typically doesn't go so well for the original cause. And uh, I will also give the stipulation that that has happened in just about every movement, but it just seems to happen much more quickly with revolt and revolution versus something like the example of early Christianity or Gandhi or MLK or someone like that, where uh, it did, it may have taken a little longer to get things going and to be successful, but it ended up having this huge impact, even if there were some corruptions along the way and uh, some issues as well. I'm not saying that this route creates perfection or utopia because that is not true. What I am saying is this route is better because it is moral. It actually fits with the ideology of something like voluntarism or libertarianism, anarchism, Christianity, any of these things. And I would say that it is practically the way to go because it is effective. And that would be my personal argument. So with that, I guess I'm going to wrap up here. I will say that anybody listening new to this show, I'll give you a shout out if you come from the Homesteaders of America event that I was recently at last weekend. It was a very good event, uh, met quite a few people, made some other connections with people in my region, and hopefully that grows into something. And it seems that the Agoras community that we've grown here in my area uh, might not be very common in other places. Seems like other people are still trying to find that or trying to build that or just seeking and don't have any sources. So uh, that seems like something that is a big need. And hopefully that does begin to grow in a more formal, structured way. And that would definitely be something that I would love to help out with if anybody wants to reach out to me, uh, if there's something I can do. And often there's at least something that I can do, even if it's just pointing you in a certain direction, then please feel free to reach out. If you're into things like homesteading and permaculture, I will give this little tidbit that was interesting. Uh, while we were at that conference, uh, PMAs were brought up, private membership associations, which I've talked about a decent bit here and there. Uh, that was brought up, and there was a lot of interest in that, even though 
even the speakers who brought that up didn't really know what it was. So uh, generally, the the expression was just that, oh, this is this really cool new thing that people are doing, and uh, we, we love to see where it's going, and we're curious to learn more about it. And that was about it. So I actually uh, talked to some of them about that. And talking with Joel Salatin, if you're familiar with that realm at all, you should know Joel Salatin. If not, look him up. But talked with him a little bit. He was one of the presenters. And uh, it was interesting because it seems that he is coming further and further in line with agorism, which is really cool. I had gone to his farm, Polyface Farm, with my family on vacation about two years ago. And he had been talking about similar things, about doing things outside of the system, just doing them themselves, doing things on the farm that, you know, because of different regulations, they're supposed to do it this way and go to this place. But, you know, hey, we're just going to do it here. We're going to do our own thing. And so I asked him afterwards about agorism, if he had heard of agorism, and he had not. And he had not really heard of much of any of that ideology, so to say. But it seems like he has learned more and more on that and is getting more and more on board with our side of things. Uh, Talking with him this time, he talked about the Rogue Food Conference, which is something that I think he headed up. I think it's him and John Moody. And I would really like to go to that. That's in Florida in March, maybe March 3rd. I don't know, somewhere around there. And so with this, he was talking about that and talking about how they're going to be talking about PMAs and ways to get around things. He had spoke at an anarchist event within, I think it was about a year ago or a little less. Uh, So that was really interesting. And he seemed to be very on board. He even mentioned people like, uh, I forget who he mentioned. It might have been John Bush, but I'm not positive. I know he mentioned Catherine Austin, Austin Fitz which uh, most people in the Liberty community should be aware of her. And if not, again, look her up. And so it seems that a lot of even these big names in like permaculture and homesteading and these other related fields are coming really in line with what we're doing. And that what we're doing is a nexus. This idea of community self-reliance and agorism is a nexus for all of these things. And I'm really looking forward to that. But that's all. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all your support, for your money, ratings, reviews, emails, whatnot. Please reach out to me. Please continue to listen. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye.